0: This episode of Design by Architectural Record is sponsored by Vitro Architectural Glass. Seize the daylight and give glass something new to do. Generate clean energy with new SolarVolt building integrated photovoltaic glass by Vitro Architectural Glass. Customize solar cells, aesthetics, and performance by using SolarVolt BIPV with any Vitro Glass product. Even use it to replace traditional building materials. Glass is a new day job. Learn about it at vitrosolarvolt.com. That's vitrosolarvolt as in voltage.com. Also, this episode is sponsored by Benjamin Moore. Founded in Brooklyn in 1883, Benjamin Moore is a leading manufacturer of premium quality residential and commercial coatings and is North America's favorite paint and coatings brand. Benjamin Moore's relentless commitment to innovation and sustainable manufacturing practices is unparalleled. The company offers a range of essential design tools for architects and design professionals, including complimentary paint color tools, online access to technical and safety data sheets, health product declarations, and other essential documents are readily available at benjaminmoore.com architects to help streamline and simplify the specification process. Contact Benjamin Moore today and bring the company's proven success to your next projects. You can reach our North America Customer Service Center at one A. 667089181 or email them at info com. Hello listeners and welcome to designed a podcast by Architectural Record. We appreciate you listening. And once finished, please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast, rate us and leave a comment. If you'd like to learn more about design and see all the other great content that Architectural Record has to offer, please visit architecturalrecord.com for more information. Enjoy the show and have a wonderful day. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Designed by Architectural Record. I'm your host, Aaron Prinz. As always, I'm going to start this podcast the same way I start every single podcast by saying thank you to everyone out there for listening to the podcast, sharing it with your friends, and of course, leaving us a review on the iTunes review section. It really just means so much, so we really appreciate it. Of course, be sure to check out architecturalrecord.com, and please, if you have a chance, follow us on Instagram at designed.podcast for everything we have coming up, because we have some really amazing guests uh, in the works, and I don't want you to miss it. This week is no different. We have an amazing guest for you. It's Craig Dykers, one of the founders of Snohetta. And he absolutely did not disappoint. Him and I are both alumni of the University of Texas at Austin, so that was great to catch up on. But they really talked about everything Snowhead is doing to kind of minimize the impact to the environment through building and we go into a lot of things, we, you know, we go into celebrity and and ego and even, you know, the built environment and the actual impacts on day to day life that you might not think of. So a lot of things to, to pack into this one. And he was absolutely wonderful. So I don't want to delay it anymore. But of course, sit back, relax, enjoy. Here we go with Craig Dykers. I, you know, I was, I was preparing for this and I was going over kind of a lot of where we could start this interview because i mean we're both ut alumni and you have such like a career that is just out there and so there's a lot of there's a lot of ways where i could see this this starting and i i'm going to take the generic route i'm sorry i have to do it but i mean <laughs> you put it out there I, i'm going to start with you know on your website i know it's a stupid question to start with but you know there's a quote that kind of stuck out to me and it says our projects are examples of attitudes rather than designs Now, I I always find the architecture website, (laughs) I I, I love it because there's always this sort of like phrase or saying, or like, we design for human experience. And you look and you're like that, you design prisons. What what (laughs) human experience are you designing for? So I just want to start with this as kind of a jumping off point in terms of your approach to design, your firm's approach to design, and how do these two things merge? And can you kind of jump off of this statement? (laughs)
1: <laughs> well you're absolutely right websites are quite problematic and um interestingly we tried to begin the practice the company without having a manifesto without having any kind of uh, f- uh statement that you can put your finger on we were very proud of that for many many years that we were manifesto free we were free of a uh, clear theoretical uh direction um we were simply solving uh, challenges and participating in challenges as they arose, and we participated in a great many challenges uh, throughout his, our history, many of them uh messy and dirty and mucky, what uh, I would say what most high design architects would walk away from because they wouldn't have complete control over every screw head or every corner detail um you know interactions with cities that are complex and amoebic. Um, so I would say that's the first comment I have to what you have to say about websites and directionality. The second thing I would say is answering your question, is there some kind of ethos that we have? And I would say that we uh, appreciate dialogue and building connections um, and open dialogue between a multitude of different characteristics of life. That means uh, different types of people. Different types of places for different types of people to coexist within, uh, and how those places interact with the natural world that we exist within. So whether that means um, climate uh, issues or biodiversity issues, those those come into into context. They always have. So you know we would consider an insect as much of a client as a human, and the dialogue and connection between those worlds is very important to us. And then finally. I would say that we try to, in terms of dialogue, open up a discussion of what's right and what's wrong, and and we'll steer around things that you can't see. So many architects focus, I believe, on things that you can see. So context is, well, there's one of those buildings over there across the street, and there's this kind of tree right here, uh, and this is what we need to respond to. Uh, Or climate, for example, sun coming in. But that's actually, although it's more common now, it used to be very rare that anybody even talked about wind and sun. But there are unseen aspects of space. What regulations or legislation has brought that space to be what it is? What types of people are able to use those spaces more comfortably? What is the sociology of the demographics of what it is we make? so all of those things are are in 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 my mind kind of swirling around in our discussions
0: well there's also i think your firm since the very beginning there's a there's a definite defined relationship between landscape and building and now i know you guys have signed on that this you know that you know the climate leadership coalition you want to you want to put this foot forward in terms of sustainable design and climate change the buildings take up they they're massive carbon emitter. So sure. there's a certain point where it is to an extent counterproductive to your business model to do this. So why? No, is
1: I wouldn't say that. I would say the opposite in the same way. Not that,
0: necessarily uh, your business model in particular.
1: But no, in, no. But in, in, in general, the, the no, essence. no. The general ethos. I mean, it's the same thing with uh, with climate uh, sensitive energy production. Um, everyone was like, well, if we don't have coal and we don't have gas, the economy is going to tank. Right. And it's counterproductive to discuss alternative energy sources. But now we see that those can be as much of an economic driver and in fact are now already a greater economic driver, alternative energy sources than the uh, fossil fuel sources that we've had in the past. So the economy did not sink. Architecture will not die because we are somehow trying to create uh, more sensitive designs that that uh, require less energy to make and to operate. that By the way, that's only a part of the picture, but that's what you asked about. I would say that in fact, it should propel the profession into greater understanding, more work, more interests, things that aren't just about making beautiful objects time after time and screaming about your fee. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, what specifically is Snowheaded doing to contribute to this?
1: Oh, well, we have a number of actions uh, that we're involved with. And by the way, I won't say we're, we're far from perfect. It's rare that anyone is perfect, and I know we have a great deal of more work to do, but we are working with various processes that uh, help us um, control and manage the embedded carbon footprint in our work. We help develop some of the world's most sophisticated carbon zero and zero emissions buildings on the planet, actually, and certainly in the far north regions where energy is quite important and we're creating comfortable Uh, uh, places for people to live and work. We're also, because we are landscape architects, and by the way, I'll say this, I can't say it enough times, I don't think we would be who we are without the landscape architecture component of our world. They, They drive a great deal of the architecture and they never get enough credit and never get enough exposure on podcasts and other things or magazine reviews, but they really are powerful and they have given us insight into the world of biodiversity and habitat which interestingly, we've been talking about now for years. And then this morning I turned on NPR and there was a whole expose on habitat and biodiversity. And, and, you know, what we've been saying even before the pandemic, but certainly after was that if buildings, new buildings, new development are pushing aside natural habitat for creatures and industrialization that's necessary to create those buildings is pushing aside habitat for creatures. We're going to have a situation where those animals or insects or fish or other kinds of bacteria and and, and things that exist around us, we'll re- start to release stress into the world. And that's what COVID-19 was. It was a stress release from a bat that was losing its habitat, both forest and insect life in agricultural settings. And that virus that it shed, which it has all the time and it doesn't always shed it, shut down the world in three months, totally shut down the world in three months. And that's actually more extreme even than climate change related to carbon abuse, which has to do with rising sea levels and and, uh, heat and and cold challenges. We see the effects of of climate change over decades, and it's hard for people to understand the effect of it. But you see the uh, effect of habitat and biodiversity abuse in three months across the entire world it's astonishing and i think we're only now starting to sense that and and part of our work at snohetta is to build that into our projects to get people to understand that you know you displace a lot when you make something and it's not just about energy footprint
0: i think that's a really great way to talk about it because and i've said this a thousand times on the podcast it always cracks me up when and we'll go to the young architect in school where they're, they, you have to have some sort of sustainable aspect to your project. And they're like, green roof, Revit, paints, SketchUp paint, Rhino paint, yeah. whatever. And they're like, there it is. And I, I think, though, that is driven by what we see. I mean, you know.
1: Sure. There's a great deal of superficial understanding of what uh, sensitivity means. On the other hand, anything is better than nothing. And, and I think we should accept. Old levels of direction, even if it's just say, oh, I'm going to put a green roof on something, that's a hell of a lot better than the alternative. So um, while we have a lot to learn, and by the way, we're just as, as much a part of this uh, challenge as anyone else, we're learning more and more about the effects of the world uh, that we create as designers. So, you know, every day there's something new that we're discovering. I think in retrospect, even though we do quite a lot, people... 10 years, 20 years from now, may look back at what we're doing and say, well, wow, that's just about as kitschy as putting a green roof on your building. So, you know, I think we just have to understand there's a spectrum of understanding. Certainly we could be better, and schools should be better at at building a sensitive understanding that is deeper than just a checklist. And lead also, I took the lead exam. I you know, I've done all these exams just because I feel like I had to, and I saw that. As important as they are, it often feels like a checklist of, uh, of things. And it, and they rarely address the process like the lean, the lean system does, which suggests that, you know, if you reach a point uh, where there's uh, an an indeterminate solution ahead or people disagree, you stop everything, you shut it all down until you get a solution. And that's contrary to the process we work within today where people just say, well, let's grapple with this. We got to meet that milestone we don't meet that milestone, you know, you're not getting paid. And actually, when you work that way, projects get drawn out. So they get actually they get delivered later. They're more expensive, sometimes stopping dead stop, getting it solved and moving forward. You may have moved that milestone, but you've made the completion time closer. So we're not teaching that when it comes to environmental design either. Well,
0: there's also, just to play devil's advocate here, you know, you're coming from a worldwide firm, but there may be someone listening in, sure. you know, in Oklahoma that's saying like, yeah, that's great, but my firm doesn't have the resources to do this. How do we get over that challenge?
1: Yeah, I, nobody should have that excuse. There should be no excuse. I don't care who you are. And there's plenty of times that we're sitting here in our studio, in fact, yesterday discussing our economic situation and how tough it is. You know, do we have enough money to pay our staff? In fact, I would suggest at times having a larger studio is more economically challenging than having a smaller studio. When we were smaller, we could, we could live without pay for a while. You know, we just do the work we love. And now, if I suggest anyone works without pay, I'd probably be slaughtered. So, you know, I, I think that there's, uh, there's, there's always something that's going to get in the way. But I would also add that the way you can get over the hump besides getting rid of excuses is to find a language that people feel comfortable with a language that you that allows you to interact with whoever is at the table with you so that you don't disguise your world in architectonic kind of gibberish that you come to the table with an open mind and and you find a way to converse that helps people feel they're all in it together and you have backup. you got to have backup. Because you can't, architects are so used to saying, well, this is the way it is. And the client's like, well, I've never seen it that way before. or This is going to kill me. Or why do you want to do that? Or why do you want to spend the money? And if you can come to them and say, well, you know, research, and in fact, in our case, we can at least bring projects forward, have shown that if you do these things, you're actually going to get greater return on your investment. And that's what a lot of people think about. And we we don't realize that as architects, because all we do is suck money into our pockets and spend it. We don't have to generate the money directly. So the people that are paying us, their top concern is, am I going to go bankrupt when this is all done? Or am I going to kill everyone in my company because I just sunk you know $100 million into a new headquarters? You know We need to get that into our heads.
0: Well, I want to change topics here. And if we can, just kind of step back for a few minutes. Take our audience through where you grew up, what your parents (laughs) did, the economics of the household, and out of all the things in life you could have done, why the heck architecture?
1: Well, it's unfortunately a complicated story. I'll try and and make it short, but um, I'm a U.S. citizen, although I'm born in Germany and I've lived over half my life in Europe. My mother's from England, so my father met my mother at the end of World War II, Uh, gives you an idea of their age. My father's now deceased. He was in the Army, and so I'm an Army brat and I lived everywhere uh, that you can uh, imagine as a child every two years we moved. I was fortunate enough to live in central Germany as a child in a little town. Uh, I was born in Hanau, where the Grimm brothers are from, and I lived in Darmstadt, which is where Ulbricht, the great architect of the arts and crafts movement, uh, built this uh, artist community with other great architects uh, nearby. And so as a child, I saw that. I didn't know what they were, but if you ever get the chance to look up, for example, the Hochseitzturn in uh, in Darmstadt, the Olbrich uh, buildings—they're just crazy. It's like were these people on drugs? Like this is nuts. And this is way back, you know, in the, in the early part of the 20th century. And I used to walk around going, "Whoa, this is just wild." And I went often there to see it as a child, but I did not connect it with architecture because I didn't. I had a good education in the army, but Things like architecture weren't really a part of the curriculum, so the two didn't line up. I hardly knew what an architect was. And uh, as I got older, and uh, that sort of slipped into my memory, and it became time to, to start to think about what I would do with my life. I was very fortunate. My mother and father were very outgoing. My father, neither of them, by the way, had an education after the age of 13. Intermittent education at fifteen or sixteen, my father had, but it was very limited. They worked. uh, My mother was involved in what do you call child labor? She worked in a sweatshop until she married, and my father worked uh, as a migrant farm worker for a while out in the fields of California. He's Mexican American. the The potential was there for not much to happen in my life, but I was very lucky. My father loved art. He loved music. He loved jazz. He was very experimental. He took me to museums all the time and exposed me to wonderful. worlds of art, including things like Man Ray and Kandinsky, which where did he get this knowledge from? He had no education whatsoever. So you know, it was just a treat and I didn't even know what all that meant until I decided to go to university. I took some business classes because that's what you do when you go to university. Psychology. <laughs> I, psychology yeah, classes. Great. <laughs> yeah. And, and then I, I, they, my, they told me, you have to do something sensible with your life, so I took some pre-med classes. Pre-med was interesting. I was drawing a lot. I had a natural a talent to draw. And my professors told me, you'll never be a doctor. Your grades aren't good enough, but boy, your drawings are great. Try the art school. You can be an anatomical illustrator. So I said, an anatomical illustrator. That sounds amazing. <laughs> Sign do me that. up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I went to the art school at University of Texas in Austin. I was fortunate enough to have some good teachers. I called my dad up on the telephone. Well, We are so close. We're very close friends. And he said to me when I told him I wanted to be an artist, There was silence and he just said, well, you're not getting any help from me. And he hung up and this was so unlike my father because he was a very liberal minded, very arts oriented person. So I waited a week, called him back and I said, why did you say that to me? It's so unlike you. And he said, well, son, I don't know much about art or artists, but I do know that if you really wanted to be an art or an artist, you would never call your father up to seek his approval. (laughs) You would just do it. And you called me up, so you you know I'm not giving you my approval. Obviously, not committed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I said, "Well, what the hell am I supposed to do?" And he said, "Well, you like science and you like art. Architecture is an interesting mix of those two worlds. And besides, an architect would probably call their father and ask for approval."
0: I think though <laughs> this is a really interesting story. I find through this is what I've recorded probably 95 of these interviews with people all over the world, and wow. there is a trend with the bigger names that i've talked to that they all didn't go like 18 architecture school grad school get out start a firm or work at a firm start a firm they all like had this back way of kind of finding how they came into architecture so how do you think these sort of experiences of hopping from the business school to the art school to the disapproval of your father if you make an artist how did that all play <laughs> into your approach to architecture what did that contribute i guess
1: Well, um, architecture stories like the one that I have, you would probably find similar stories in great authors or, um, literary, the literary world. And, and I say that because the two are very, and musicians also, um, not all musicians, but certainly authors, many of them, you have to understand life before you can write about it. You know, I mean, it just makes sense. Right. And, uh, you know, a lot of authors have gone out, they've experienced life in different ways, uh. Of course, they may have been well educated in grammar and style, and that's important too, but they have experienced life through multiple perspectives, so they're able to write about it. Architecture is identical to that. Architecture is useless, completely useless if it doesn't have a characteristic that connects it to the world around us. Then it becomes a monument, and it can't be called art because art has a different kind of of gestation um, so architecture will never be art, just like art won't be architecture. They're maybe related, but they're not the same. And so if we make architecture that has no life in it, no connection to life, no understanding of the huge and rather diverse and complex world we live in, then it's just there for a few pretty pictures and then it's over. You know, it's it's like prom night. We should all, as architects, embed ourselves in life and find out why things occur in life what makes society tick what 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 causes the problems that we often criticize and i would i would say as i often do architects are not guilt free many architects like to point fingers like when i don't know let's say when george floyd was murdered or Other things they see, they'll blame the police, they'll blame politics, they'll blame everybody. The last person that would ever come to an architect's mind to think was involved in the George Floyd killing was an architect. But think about it. The shop, the street intersection, the buildings around where George Floyd was murdered, all of those things came from designers and architects. We created the stage within which these things occur. So we are not free of guilt. We have to better understand how each decision we make can affect political realm, social realm, health and well-being, and so on. Same with COVID. We would, last thing we would blame is ourselves. But it was our, our actions that helped also create the kind of development that created the stress on habitat that COVID more or less came from. <laughs> Sorry, am I being Debbie Downer here? No, Let's not talk at all. About birthdays. Like, yeah, that's like, <laughs> wow, it's it's
0: eight forty five in the morning here. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, this is great. Um, I want to switch gears again. Here. Sorry
1: for anyone named Debbie. I will never uh, use that Debbie Downer <laughs> expression ever again. Pants all. Pants all. Bad thing to say. Uh, Yeah.
0: <laughs> so you graduated UT though after this, you know, just to continue the story along here. You graduated uh-huh. from University of Texas at Austin in nineteen eighty five. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: Uh, that's right, I think, yeah. But you're at the height,
0: or going into the height of what is postmodernism—the so late 80s and deconstructivism.
1: Early 90s. Uh, postmodernism and deconstructivism were two trains headed straight towards each other. But, and we were watching the train wreck happen.
0: And Charles Moore was like a a big character at the at UT. He, he
1: wasn't yet. Uh, he 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 arrived as an in informal. Uh, um, I can't remember the word, but he he had a seat there. Just after I left, like the semester after I left. But he gave a few lectures prior to, so he was beginning to show his face at the school.
0: But now, I mean, I feel like, I feel like. So was
1: Peter Eisenman, by the way. Peter Eisenman was coming quite a lot.
0: I feel like postmodernism is is coming back in a way, but there's still kind of this dirty word. If, you know, you go into a review and someone's like, oh, postmodern, everyone kind of goes, but when you're coming up and that's your training, that's the hot style of the day. And now, you know, you have this firm. What was the influence of that on your design process, your design thinking, and how that related to what became Well,
1: um Well, uh, is that an two... irrelevant
0: question? I don't know. Or... Well,
1: no, I, I, everything has uh, relevance in your history. We are the product of what we have done and, and been throughout our lives. So it's impossible to ignore something like that. I would say that um, what we saw... And by the way, I want to say deconstructivism was as much or as big of an influence as postmodernism at the time, perhaps even bigger. And actually what was happening was there was that group of modernists of which began to bifurcate and some became postmodernists, some became deconstructivists. And very few at the time who were famous were known as real modernists uh, in some way, working in the old world of modernism prior to these two kind of trajectories, and uh, Foucault and all of these other other philosophers that are now being returned to, by the way. So I would say, uh, did postmodernism influence me? I didn't enjoy it. I felt at the time that I should be asking myself different questions than how a certain area of Italy relates to where I live. Now, some of it does, because at the time, You know, we were discussing climate also at the time and Tuscany and central Italy have the same climactic conditions as Texas. So you can, as central Texas, so you can relate those two worlds perfectly. But stylistically, why were we, why were we romanticizing the Romans so much, you know, (laughs) even though I love uh, ancient and and classical architecture from Greece and Rome, but it, it seemed awkward to me. It seemed like an affectation. So um, I was pushing hard in my mind to figure out a way out of that. Um, The plasticity of history also was intriguing, but kind of bothersome. At the same time, deconstructivists were coming along, and they were pushing this notion that, and I'm going to paraphrase here, you could talk about this for a long time, and academics would throw tomatoes at me for paraphrasing, but um, essentially there was an idea that down in something were small quarks of, of information, small bits of information that were the um, were the reason why things exist, that the smaller you got, the smaller you understood, the more you deconstructed something, the truth would appear. And that also bothered me because I noticed that the world uh, had various uh, spectrum of, of ways of understanding things. And potentially the biggest thing, the biggest possible thing, could, could provide value or tell you a truth. And the the ancient uh, uh, analog here is from China, the great folk Tale, where there's nine blind people trying to figure out what an elephant is. I can't remember the number. It's, I just threw out the number nine. But each one is like one's holding the foot and thinks it's a tree. One's holding the nose and thinks it's a, a soft rope. You know, one's got its hand on the butt and thinks it's an immovable mountain, you know, and nobody knows that it's an elephant because they just can't see enough of it that's sort of where my head was at what if i stood back and you know tried to understand it from different perspectives i would eventually understand it was an elephant deconstructivism where the where the people holding each piece um i don't think they that means they have no value it's just it was a different approach than i thought needed to be underscored so as i approached approached my career i was i was looking uh in a somewhat critical way uh at all these approaches and trying to find my own place, which is sometimes embarrassing and uncomfortable. I used to joke, oh, people would say, well, you know, what kind of architecture are you to do? And I'd say, oh, I'm a neo-standard architect. (laughs) You know, what's neo-standard? Well, it's just, you know, ordinary stuff that's kind of new. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think (laughs) bring up
0: a really, really good point about following trends and all this stuff. And we had Ken Gokuma on here. I met him up in Dallas and he was saying that was it the M2 or 2M or whatever, whatever the building is in Japan, where he was saying like, that was the, his biggest regret of his career. And after he did it, he was like, I'm never going to work again. No one's ever going to yeah. hire me. And he's like, and then <laughs> I went to like a small village and worked for two years on like an outhouse or a public toilet or something. And that's yeah. when I in like the wood joinery. So I think like just following along with people is not necessarily like the best way to go about things,
1: if that makes sense. You can definitely learn. You should learn from others. And that's, I mean, I, can, I, I copied right out, copied when I was in school, architects that I admired just so I could learn their thought process. And I, I was open about it. Like, I know I'm copying this architect, but I need to learn why they're doing things. So I would try to make a design based on their thinking. But that didn't mean that that was the rest of my life. I was going to copy this particular architect. And uh, it just was a way of learning. And then once you, it's like musicians do that too. They'll they'll copy an, uh, a musician they like while they're practicing, but that doesn't mean they play their music and call it their own. So um, that part of thinking is important. But at some point, you have to recognize that you are not those other people. You are not a movement. You are only an individual working in a society. And how do you add to that society?
0: I want to just to piggyback on top of this, and I know you've talked about it a thousand times, so please don't roll your eyes and be like, "Here we go again." <laughs> but it's come up a number, like you specifically and your firm, have come up a number of times on the podcast, most notably with uh, Chris Sharpless's shop, where he said, like, in the beginning, they were doing like gaps, like as built for the gap, and mm. he said, "Well, we just wanted to save up enough money so we could do a competition because that's how Snowheaded mm. did it." Yeah, the Library <laughs> at Alexandria. It's nice to hear. <laughs> And now you guys, I don't know, it's kind of funny how the world, you know what I mean, all works. But the Library of Alexandria, and I don't want to go into like the design process and all of that. But what I find really interesting about this story, and I'm sorry if you've told it a thousand times, I hope you haven't. But you're like 28 years old, right? Living in Los Angeles. Yeah. Who are you? (laughs) <laughs> to enter this oh. competition and i say this with all respect i'm just saying no the, no like sure but you're 28 is... years old who are you to be like i'm going to enter this competition for was it 80,000 square meters like
1: yeah are
0: you out of your mind and then yeah. second of all I, this is a this is going to be like a 12-part question so
1: uh, <laughs> i better write this down <laughs> yeah yeah so like
0: are you out of your mind and there's like 550 people to enter it And you get that call or page or whatever is happening in the 80s, you know, however you guys communicated. I was too. I don't know. But like you get that call. Telephone. What is going through your mind? Did you hang up the phone and just like, you know, what is that experience like?
1: Well, who was I at the time? I was just a, (laughs) a, a kind of a kid, a punk, like most of us are at that age, you know, just messing around, trying to find interesting things to do. I worked very hard in my, in my uh, world to try and see opportunities. Uh, you know, the Alexandria Library opportunity didn't just roll through the door. I had, you had to search for it, looked in journals, talked to friends. In the end, it was friends and friends. We all were talking about the same thing at the same time, and we decided to do it together. But had I not been inquisitive, or had they not been inquisitive, it would have not uh, been apparent to us. So if you want to do something with your life, don't just sit there on your on your duff and wait for the door to open, because it won't. <laughs> it just simply won't. You have to go out and open 100 doors and keep looking. And some of those doors are going to be great, and they're going to be wonderful, but they might be shorter-term things, and some are going to be larger and more challenging. That's the first answer. The second would be, you know, why on earth did we have the chutzpah, the gall, to enter this? Well, in fact, we didn't each one of us alone, if I would have entered it on on my own, I knew, that's nuts. There's no way I can do this. It's crazy. Why should I have the capacity to create this design of this magnitude for such an important structure in the world, sitting on my uh, drawing table being the smartest person in the world? That was nuts. So instead, we started to make these networks of people, and all of us felt a similar idea that together we could do it, alone we could not. And that built the foundation of our company, this feeling that we could be together and make something greater than the sum of its parts. And had we not done that, and the second thing we also understood was that we knew where we were stupid because everybody's got something that they're stupid about. (laughs) Not everyone is a genius about everything. Some people might be, but I don't know them. Anyway, There were areas that we knew we didn't understand, so we we felt how to manage that. And certainly after we won, we formalized understanding where where our ignorance was so that we could get help from other people that knew more than we did. So uh, those two things together, this networking and this understanding of ignorance as much as intelligence, helped us make it a winning proposal that was unique and helped us succeed in building it because by the way winning something like that is 10% of actual accomplishment getting it built is 90 you know percent of the of the trauma uh, and it took us 13 years we nearly killed each other we worked night and day weekends we we had fights we had you know we lost money we went bankrupt twice you you'd name it we went through it
0: you know looking back if you don't get that call and you don't win that project where is craig dyker's now
1: Oh, um I could be working on a ranch. I don't know. I like outdoors. Gensler. You're
0: at you're a Gensler. <laughs> oh, no, no. I, I
1: don't know what. I know for sure I would have made. I was just that kind of person. I enjoyed a world of, of unique explorations. And um, by the way, working at Gensler is not a problem. In fact, I deliberately went to work for uh, companies that had clear uh, territorial methodologies because I wanted to learn from that, too. You, you can learn from everything just so long as inside you know who you are and where you want to go. I deliberately took a job after I left school when I was trying to get some money with what I tried to find was the worst architectural practice in the city at the time in Los Angeles. I went around looking for the worst practice I could find, <laughs> which is just as hard as finding the best one. And getting a job there. So I, I chose one because they had Playboy magazines in the bathroom. And I said, this has to be the worst possible office you could the, ever the imagine. Benefits working. Were, the benefits were horrible,
0: but you know, yeah. I mean, yeah. that
1: was just nuts, right? Like, why yeah. would that be? How could that exist, right? And it was a bunch of guys who were very macho. And so, anyway, um, the thing was, though, and this is why I did it. Despite all that, I learned what the mud was. I learned what it felt like to stick my hands in the mud, because if I'm going to complain about it, I want to have had my hands in it. And then I learned that there are people that know quite a lot in places like this. And I met one person who had a tremendous effect on my future life as an architect in that thing. So you have to kind of broaden your perspective. And and even if you're working at a company that has a clear methodology and a hierarchy, there's value in that.
0: Well, Michael Benedict, a mutual acquaintance of ours, book out now, Architecture Beyond Experience. But, my, yeah, uh, yeah, my, uh, he was saying when you were in his class that he said on the podcast, like you could tell that you were different. You could tell that you were, he said special, but like, did you get that sense when you were at school or what was it you think that kind of set you apart at that time in your life?
1: Well, I suppose I always felt a little bit odd. Um, I, uh, You know, as I said, I moved every two years as a child, so you always feel like an odd person in the new place you live in. I was fortunate that um, I was given a cultural upbringing in a world around me that very few people had that. I was, you know, a little flamboyant and sometimes was bullied. Uh, There were many things in my life that were unusual. I even had, um, and I don't often talk about this as as personal, but um, I had a hormonal uh, challenge when I was in puberty that um, where it's, I think, about maybe 6% of young boys get this where uh, you acquire female attributes. So I started growing breasts and things like that. <laughs> and, you know, that was kind of an odd thing for, for me to, to work through as a child. Uh, as a result, later in life, I think I've had a lot of trans. Friends, all my life, I kind of always appreciated that, and had we we always have fun. But you know, there's always been something that sort of made me think I was in a in an unusual spot. And when I went into architecture school, I was lucky that my first few classes, which included Larry Speck, really were Love Larry. Larry's a good yeah, player. and his his history and theory class was you know I I have a book right here outside that I got from his class I still look at. That's really the best. I think
0: in seven years of school, the history class is probably the best class I've ever taken. Sorry.
1: Yeah. And then fortunately, I then met Michael Benedict, who also wrote this amazing book at the time that he was writing. And he just had, I mean, the thing about Michael Benedict that was wonderful for me was that it wasn't just about architecture. It was about him as a human being. He helped me understand that architecture is about humanity and about you as a person and about him as a person. And so I learned to like architecture both through the field, the profession, and through the individual qualities that people possess. And I can't say how important that has been in my career, um, as I think I I still feel that way today. So I, I would say uh Michael had a tremendous influence I think I was you weren't supposed to but I think I took his class twice and uh and I helped him out in his studio and and uh you know I was I was very fortunate to be seeing what he was up to and then he introduced me to Coy Howard and uh Stanley Sidewitz. and both of those are people of my eye. because I have to say in third year architecture school I was ready to snuff it I thought this was the worst profession you could ever possibly get involved in and then I started to listen to Michael, and then I saw Coy Howard's work, and I thought, oh, this is what it's about. And then some of Larry's books started to ma- have meaning to me. Larry Speck's books that he told us to read. And so I, I stayed in.
0: I think just as an aside, Michael Benedict for an architecture reality oh. is one of my yeah, favorite books. Yeah, I one have of my that just
1: books. right out. Yeah, I have two copies, and one of them is well, really beat up. <laughs> I was in his class,
0: and I looked it up, and it was like, and I was like Michael the book is only 55 pages what are you doing (laughs) and so I found a copy on Amazon for like $17 or something and then I took it in and I was like hey Michael would you mind signing this for me you know what I mean and and I was like keep it a day like "No, no 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 I got this right now I got this right now yeah opens the book signs it and I get it back all excited and I open it up
1: and it says to architecture, Michael and I was like, oh, <laughs> that's funny. That's very funny. But you know, school is great because it opens your minds to so many people. And there were others that were still important to me to this day. A fellow student named Gilles, another one named Pat Butler. Um, I met, uh, you know, Roxanne Williamson, the t- history teacher. Who was I still have her history papers that I read from time to time? So you know, school is extremely important in one's career.
0: Getting back to the profession in the larger Built environment. Now you're a leading firm in the world. We talked about trends earlier, but stuff comes and goes. What do you think the world needs to see more of in terms of architecture? And is there something that maybe the world has seen enough of and needs to kind of move on from?
1: Well, gosh, I'm I'm not sure. Uh, This is an interesting question. We've certainly seen too much focus on product and object. While I think that's very important, people often say, yeah, but it's just about making beautiful things. I'm sorry. Beautiful, beauty is important. So we have to be able to understand what makes beautiful things or intriguing objects or how we can, um, produce a, a, a composition that connects, uh, to people. So that's important. Even theory is important, which I'm not a theorist in the academic sense. So. I do see theory as moving the profession, but I also don't see it as the primary force. It's a force that supports the profession. But those two things, uh, as much value as they have, still are about introspective needs. So theory is often about architects thinking through their own mind, mental connection to the world of the profession or the world around them. And, And object, beauty, digital clay, all of that stuff is about Impressing people with your skill and capacity in many cases. Um, what we're missing, I suppose, is the fact that there's the unseen that needs to be discussed, um, the effects and consequences of what we make. So, <clears throat> making an object that may appear beautiful but has displaced habitat, that needs to be a part of our discussion. Or creating a, an object that is powerful and impressive but alienates certain ethnic or racial groups that needs to be discussed. Learning about history as a basis for the work that we create in the West that comes from the West needs to be discussed. We need to learn more from uh, the worlds of architecture that also can influence ourselves and our work that are not European-based. So right now I'm working on, I'm very fortunate, you know, we started in Alexandria, which is, you know, it's an Arabic, African, and ancient, and classical, Hellenistic, and Egyptian Project, so already that started to bubble in my head, but now, like I'm wor- working with a small project in Zimbabwe, and you know when I was in school, I learned about the great Zimbabwe, the amazing fortress palace that's built there, and it's incredible, and I'm starting to learn about the attributes of how these great works of architecture were made and see if they have value in the West. All of those things I think need to be more about what we discuss rather than simply saying, "You've got to save the world, save it now, or gee, isn't this gorgeous? Boy, this is gorgeous. This is just the most. And look how perfect it looks in the picture.
0: (laughs) Well, I always think, though, there is this stupid thing about like architects have this notion that they can solve any problem that's ever happened in the entire world, (laughs) (laughs) which is just not true. So we kind of have to pick our battles to some extent, right?
1: Yeah, you know, you're right about that. We're uh, as my father used to always tell me, what is it? Jack of old trades, king of none. Mm. Uh, so, you know, we, we're we trained to think in broad perspective, which is positive, but it also gives us the alien feeling that we are the masters of, of of the universe. And we deal with a lot of money and we deal with people's lives. So we're a lot like doctors. And you'll find sometimes doctors have that same quality.
0: You know, throughout, you know, history, there have always been these sort of names and when you were growing up, it's probably Rem. Um, and before that, No. Corb, and no, who was, who, was, who was the person?
1: Rem only began to be on the horizon when I was in school. So um, Delirious New York came out, and I bought the first copy, and I was interested in it. But most of my, uh, most of my uh, the people I w- were impressed by were mostly deceased. Um, the world of the heroic architect had not yet arrived. Uh, for, for contemporary architecture. I mean, Frank Gehry was out and about. Uh, so he was he was quite popular at the time. And then people like Charles Moore and, and Peter Eisenman. And as much as I found them all interesting, they weren't inspiring me like some of the uh, deceased architects. Although there were a few ones that were alive. Sveta before I had any connection to Norway, was very important to me. But I was in, impressed by, uh, I don't know, Dom, uh, Dom Hans van der Lone out of Vols, Friedrich Schwartz. Uh, no, sorry, Rudolf Schwartz out of Aachen, who was really interesting. Ulbricht because I, I saw him as a child, and a great many Expressionists that are uh, that are still an influence me to me today. I would say Bruno Taut. Those were Expressionists that meant something to me. I was really, really heavily engrossed by people of the between the wars era in in Europe, and certainly in Northern Europe. I mentioned Leverence, I think in terms of the living scarpa was was an influence oma has always been impressive to me but i i still don't you know be, i don't know i see them as a, as a as a parallel world to mine so when i look back it's easier to see it as a separate world there are some architects alive today that i do focus on some of them younger
0: but there's also this notion of celebrity i think in 2021 it's amplified even more i mean you look at Yark, and we've talked already about, we watched, all watched his abstract where it's just like him reacting to himself in his reflection or whatever it is. <laughs> like in the, like, There's this notion of celebrity and there's architects that stand out that the entire world is looking at. And Snoheda is a firm, but you kind of, maybe it's the UT connection, I don't know, you kind of emerge as kind of the front man of the firm in my mind. And so you are one of these now architect is a dumb word but like it's moving up you're one of those people that people say like craig dykers craig dykers and maybe it's you're going to be very humble but i mean if you look at how many times Um, your name comes up in goldsmith hall it comes up a lot so (laughs) i want to know what is and don't be humble about this what (laughs) sorry i know you probably will be but what has the impact of that celebrity been on the firm and on your career
1: well, first of all, I want to say that you are actually a, a little bit mistaken about this. We nowadays, these days in the digital world that we live in, base our understanding of celebrity stardom on a bunch of analog and a bunch of um algorithms that the computer plays on where you're located, et cetera. So you will hear more about me here in the U.S. than you will hear about my partner, Chittle, in Europe. There are people in Europe that hardly know my name. And people here that hardly know my partner's name. And that's because the way the internet is created today. So you, you definitely can't rely on on fame because it shows up a lot on the internet. Uh, on the other hand, uh, another thing is I'm in this context. I'm in the, in America. So, so uh, I tend to have more connection to people here. And therefore, my name bubbles to the surface. There are other people in the studio, including my partner and even Elaine. Here, who people sometimes don't know exist, but she has a tremendous effect on others, and people know and and respect her so and that's just to mention a few, so I would say that first, the second thing is I accept it I am so happy, even though you'd be surprised how many people don't know who we are, which is kind of surprising when everyone says to me, "You're so famous, and I know of people um in the profession even that and that maybe it's because we have this weird name and they don't know how to pronounce it, and they don't know. Why isn't there a Snoheta person that I can say that's the one? And all of that gets mixed up into the madness. On the other hand, I would say that some of my most proud moments in in my career have been when I walked into a hotel, a random hotel somewhere, with a young man or young person behind the counter who's checking me in and he sees my name and he says, are you that Craig DiKers?" And I say, well, it depends, (laughs) you know, am I on some kind of wanted list? It's, well, I'm not an architect. I don't go to university, but I love architecture. And I go out and I find things and I found the work of your studio and it's really inspired me. And, uh, you know, I want to learn more about architecture. And wow, you cannot be blessed with a a greater thing to say. Or I've been in the desert in Libya with uh, some Berbers uh, with camels who I came across in the middle of nowhere. Who knew about the Alexandria Library? Knew everything about it, and were impressed by the building. You know, th- that's the kind of fame I think that is is powerful. Uh, just because you you know make a lot of money or you sell a lot of products or you're in a lot of magazines isn't necessarily that valuable to me.
0: Maybe you just addressed it, but what's your proudest moment in architecture?
1: Oh, I, I'm afraid I probably did just address it. Um, meeting people. Who have a new perspective uh, on life, on the places they live in, and the world that they create through their understanding of architecture, especially if, of course, if it's things that we have made, then that's even more meaningful. But it's not always. It's just other works of architecture that have influenced them in their life. So that always uh, helps me and allows me to feel proud of what we do at our studio.
0: What's the biggest setback you've had in your career, and how have you used it to kind of motivate yourself to get you mm. get to where you are today?
1: Well, it's not just my career. I should say it's probably my life. I've worked all my life with an interest of political um, change. I was out marching. I lived in Washington D.C. My father was stationed in Walter Reed in the early 70s, and I was out marching with my brother when I was just a kid on the mall, the West Mall, for the Vietnam, you know, to end the Vietnam War and looking uh, and marching against racial injustice in the military uh, during the Vietnam War. You know, I've always been working for all of these things all my life. And as I mentioned earlier, I have had connections with a wide range of people. I've been involved with creating groups and and working forward to try and deal with the world around me uh, that um, goes beyond architecture. And over the last year, there were a lot of people that spewed a lot of hatred towards me. that was really difficult. Uh, for me now of course i you always learn from things even when when, when they're mean and nasty and i learned a, a few things but um i would say that was a tremendous setback when people don't aren't able to see who you really are and what your work really is about that's the exact opposite of the first question where they really connect or really learn desire uh when when it when it builds hatred that is just a terrible setback
0: what's your favorite building
1: oh oof. Oh, gosh. Um, Is it the you Alexandria know, I, Library? Oh, of our project? <laughs> no, no, i no, no, of the I mean, whole I mean, world. I was thinking the <laughs> world, but I thought it would be funny if you said Well, it I always like, uh, no, I always like, yeah, again, I look back in time. So I, I really enjoy, uh, you know, Casa Grande and the great uh, First Nations uh, um, uh, and American Indian tri- tribal constructions uh, of the great era of civilization here in uh, in North America, these beautiful cave dwellings that you find in the Southwest. My father's from New Mexico, so probably that gives me a a connection to that that's greater maybe than others have. But they were brilliant constructions, beautifully integrated into the landscape, made intelligently with respect to the environment, um, and actually well-engineered, and that they still exist today in harsh environments uh, after all this time. So those great uh, dwellings of the um, early American First Nations people are intriguing to me. I, I love a lot of the simpler work of people like Leverence. i still look at at his work and it inspires me hans van der lone also the the project involves for the monastery and uh there's a lot of expressionist architecture that i that i look back at still um but in terms of contemporary work gosh there's just all the time things happening there's an architects here in the city called N architects every time they do something it might not be gigantic but it's it's really remarkable gosh there's a whole bunch of Young architects that I'm always looking at things. Some of them are even, I think, called like young projects or something. There's a guy up in Nova Scotia, OG, just random stuff.
0: <laughs> Knowing what you know now and going through all the experiences you've had in the last 30 years, 35 years, what would you tell young Craig sitting at his desk in Goldsmith Hall? Eat better. <laughs> uh
1: <laughs> you know Maybe. there's not
0: an architecture school I've been to that is not across the street from a Chipotle. I don't know what the connection is, but they're always yeah. one and the same yeah,
1: there like. wasn't one of those in my day because they didn't exist, but there was something called Schlotsky's or something that was a sandwich place, but generally, I had so little money I mean I paid my parents had no no money, so they couldn't pay for anything. They helped me when they could, but basically, I paid for everything myself, and usually, I was down to you know five dollars spending money a week and so we would make uh, a pot of brown or black beans this big on the, you know, our, me and my roommates, and we would eat that for over a week, you know, just a pot of beans. And uh, or if I was going at school and I didn't have time to bring the beans with me, uh, then I would just go out and buy one of those dollar fifty egg rolls. Yeah, eat better would certainly be an important uh, thing I would do, and you know, treat your treat your body with more care. We're we're we we're sort of given the impression that. Uh, we have to abuse ourselves to be great architects and I was part of that. And uh I'm paying the price for it now actually. My body is uh saying, Craig, uh fifty years of killing yourself is gonna kill you.
0: <laughs> What's next for Snoheta?
1: Oh well I, I'm I'm hopeful that we we will create even broader range of understandings of design. We will build our, our world of uh of Biodiversity and habitat understanding, of course, and continue to push forward in in uh, in understanding the abuse of natural resources. I actually call it climate abuse rather than climate change because the truth is it's all about abusing uh, the climate. It's not about changing it. <laughs> it's about how much we abuse it uh, on different levels. Uh, so that I hope will grow. I hope we will be able to find ways to have younger people in the studio grow uh, and uh, be able to participate in how the direction of the future will 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 succeed and change uh, as uh, as us older ones are more and more out of touch. So um, I would say all of those things are important to us. Um, personally, I, I, I like all the little projects that I'm working on right now. I mentioned the mine in Zimbabwe. I'm working on a little project with Ghetto Gastro up in the Bronx for a community center and a and a and a and a kitchen type art development. Um uh I'm working with an uh with a project in Rio de Janeiro in the uh, favelas, uh which is really fascinating. All of those to me are something that I enjoy and maybe I hope to we can do more of in the future.
0: Well Craig Dikers, this has been absolutely amazing. I've heard about you for years and so I'm so glad I got to actually talk with you. Um I thought this was really interesting. I think our listeners will find it interesting too. So thanks a lot, man.
1: Appreciate it. All right. Good fortune in in everything. and, And I'm glad you had the time to talk with us.
0: Enjoy everybody. Thank you for listening to an episode of Designed, a podcast by Architectural Record. If you enjoyed this episode, we would appreciate you taking a moment to subscribe to the podcast, give us a rating, and leave us a comment. Have a wonderful day.